You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. As we welcome you along to the programme, emails available, corktoday at c103.ie and all of the papers today, including some on the front pages of RTE back in the news and God help us they're back in the news again for all of the wrong uh, reasons and of course this is all to do uh, with the toy show the music musical and the uh, report is uh, this report that everyone was waiting for it's finally uh, out into what has now been described as the flop uh, musical. It was staged in the sort of December, November, December of 2022 and it found the RTE board never formally signed off on the show. I mean that to me is the most bizarre statement that is going to come out from uh, this uh, particular review. I mean how can you have a board that doesn't sign off on something that spends such a huge sum of money? So a lot of Attention is going to go on the board, on the RTE board. And remember, the current RTE board, five of the members were on the board at the time that this toy show, the musical, was such a flop. And financially, it cost a lot of money. 2.2 million of licence fee payers' money went down the tubes with this particular uh, musical. No written approval for toy show, the musical, was required, though they're saying under corporate governance rules. So that's something that obviously has to be looked at. Members of the board... Speaking to those that were doing the investigation of this report, said the show was simply presented to them as a fait accompli. So then they straight away are pointing the finger of blame back at the RTE management. Now, RTE management had projected to break even uh, and they were even saying they'd do better than break even. They they were hoping for very strong sales and they were reckoning that once they got strong sales from 40 out of 50 performances, they reckoned they were going to do well. But what then ultimately happened was there was only 35 shows and then if you only have 35 shows it's going to make it very, very difficult to even recoup the costs. The predictions of Ticket sales were unrealistic, according to those with knowledge of the report. Uh, Compared to similar events, they had it in their head. They would sell a lot more tickets than they actually did. So they were very unrealistic in their expectations about how many tickets they would actually sell. Even with the number of shows they had on, they would need it to have sold out completely. And then to do that, they reckon they wouldn't even have broken even. Now, the report was carried out by accountants Grant Thornton and they found that the RTE board was never asked to give any official approval for the show. So someone in management decided this is going to be great. We'll make a load of money out of a musical. Let's put it on. And nobody thought to go to the board and say, look, guys, you're the board. What do you think of this? Um, now, the investigation is pointing out that because of this corporate governance issue, that there wasn't an obligation to uh, do so. They weren't told and they didn't ask. And I think that's the other one. Even if they weren't um, asked about it and they were, it was, you know, presented to them as a fait accompli, did they not then start to ask questions about, well, can we take a look at this? Can we take a look at the funding model? Can we take a look at what you expect to make? And then ask the questions of what happens if you don't sell those tickets and, you know, and already have an investigation. Could we actually lose money? But nobody seemed to have just asked any questions. I think whether it was egos took over and people thought that this toy show, the musical, was going to be the best thing since the toy show. Just because the toy show on TV was so successful, I think someone along the line believed 
that the musical was equally going to be as successful but that was the, the last thing that actually uh, happened. Now the RTE management, those behind the musical, they forecasted that the revenue would be 3.2 million which is great and on paper that looks uh, re- really good and that was based on the sale of 90,000 tickets but they didn't sell anywhere near 90,000 uh, tickets. Just a little over 11,000 tickets were sold and in total only 27 performances went ahead all of the other half of the shows had to be uh, cancelled. So they literally, on 11,000 tickets, they just hadn't a hope of even breaking uh, even. So the figures have come out. The musical took in uh, just under half a million euro in revenue. But then when you look at the cost side of it, the cost was over 2.6 million. So that meant the loss came in at 2.2 million. And now RTE also spent... 200,000 on blanket advertising for the musical. And that was on top of the high profile free advertising that was obviously available to the broadcaster. You know, it was constantly being advertised on the RT stations and on the, the television stations and on the radio stations. And they obviously started to see that the tickets weren't selling. So 200,000 went in to additional advertising as well. Now, the report will be uh, published this morning and obviously this report now is the latest in the wake of the fallout from all of the RTE payments uh, scandal. Several RTE board members are now likely to face strong calls to resign over this report. Now, the RTE chair, who, by the way, it has to be pointed out, wasn't a member of the board when the musical was was operating. She has pointed to weakness of the board's controls and lack of rigorous interrogation of the musical. The current chair is uh, Sheen Nirali. She was damning in her verdict of the board's role in the debacle and she says the figures are absolutely stark. The media minister Catherine Martin, uh, she said she received a copy of the report. She's giving it due consideration but she declined yesterday. I saw her on the news. Uh, she declined to make any comment on the report. She wants to wait for RT to officially publish it uh, today. But there is a lot of calls for uh, people, certainly for the five board members that are still there. Should those five board members, should they now resign on the back of this particular report? John has already been on to say, Patricia, the latest report of 2.2 million of licence payers' money wasted is absolutely staggering. We're also told five of the board who presided over this musical debacle are still on the board. They should be removed now. And I would also point, says John, that they should be removed with no exit package. People should not be rewarded, particularly for a massive failure. This will encourage more people now not to renew their licence. RTE now looks uh, doomed. And actually, I have to say, when I was poring over what has come out from the report before it gets officially launched today. That was the one thing I'd have to agree with you, John. It was the one thing that resonated with me. The fact that so much of this money has come out of the licence fee money. I thought the very same thing. If people are on, sitting on the fence and dithering as to whether they'll pay their TV licence or not, when they see money like that being wasted, if, if people are saying, why should I pay 
when this money seems to be going into a black hole and nobody seems to be responsible for how the money is being paid. And I know Bernard already on saying, having heard what has come out from Toy Show, the musical, uh, Bernard said, I'm actually so glad now I didn't pay my TV licence last year. I was due to pay it at the end of November. I was said I would wait until January, but now having listened to this, I've no intention of paying it. I wonder, will others follow suit? 0818 Our lines are, are open. Would you agree with John that this is RTE doomed? Or is it a case if it was the management at the time? Is it unfair? The fact that the board knew nothing about it, even though people would say they're on a board, they should have known more about it. But the five who are still in place, should they should they resign themselves or they should be or should they be removed? Your thoughts are welcomed. Now the uh, the Margaret and the gang behind that wonderful Donnerail Memories book that came out at Christmas that sold out so uh, quickly has been back on because she'd been they've been on to us early uh, after Christmas because people were still looking for a copy of this book and of course the initial print run as I say just sold out so they're trying to make up their minds whether they'll go for a rerun or not so they're trying to get the level of interest and uh, Margaret has contacted me this morning to say there has been a great response to the idea of reprinting Donna Rail uh, Memories because so many people missed out on getting a copy before Christmas so the date for inquiries will end on Valentine's Day the 14th of February and then after that date they'll know how many people are looking for a copy and then make a fir- firm decision whether they'll go to a rerun or, or not because they just don't want to end up with a load of books that they can't uh, sell. So they're saying, please don't be disappointed second time round. If the reprint is to go ahead, they have to have a firm commitment from a certain number of people because they do believe that the Donnerail Memories book is certainly going to be a collector's item. To book a copy of the book, call 087 685 3898 or you can contact any of the committee members in Donnerail. The HSC is asking patients to please stay away from emergency departments if possible as a number of around the country are under significant pressure again this week. But what happens when you have no choice but to attend uh, an an A&E department? Is it acceptable that an 87-year-old man would have to spend 100 hours waiting for a bed at University Hospital Limerick? Well, highlighting the case of his uh, grandfather is uh, Conor Sheehan, who joins me this morning. Now, Conor also happens to be a councillor for Limerick City and uh, county uh, councillor, but very much joins me as a concerned grandson this morning. Good morning to you, Connor. Good morning, Patricia, and a very good morning to your listeners. And I suppose the first question is, how is your granddad, Jerry, doing today? Um, he's a lot better. He's not fully there yet, but he's been in Croom Orthopaedic Hospital where he was sent on Monday evening um, and he's still receiving antibiotics but the infection is beginning to clear Thank a good God. bit Thank and God. he's receiving excellent care and treatment out there and I mean even from the point of view of like what I would describe being an A&E for 100 hours like that as it's almost like an assault on your senses because it's so bright and so loud and so um, you know so busy there that even from the point of view of um, just even sleeping is virtually impossible there. So he he was absolutely exhausted from having been there so long. The poor man. So the poor man, and 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 yet we're, he's trying to recover. How can you recover when you're that stressed out? So I suppose we need to go back. It was actually this day last week, la- Thursday of last week. So just out, outline the series of events of what happened uh, to your grandfather. <laughs> 
Well, basically, my granddad had an ulcer on his or has an ulcer on his leg. And this is sort of a, a recurring issue for him. But the ulcer wasn't clearing with oral antibiotics. So um, my mum is an only child and it's my mum's dad, the only surviving grandparent we have left. And basically, um, my mum is immunocompromised at the moment because she was having chemotherapy in the second half of last year. So she can't really go near any hospitals or doctors. So basically, she rang me and asked me, would I take him to the GP, um, that the leg was concerning her. It wasn't healing. He was in a lot of pain. So I took him to his GP. Um, and luckily, he has a brilliant GP. And she looked at the leg and said, look, I'm going to try and get an appointment for a place known as the surgical assessment unit at UHL because I'm really I'm concerned that that ulcer isn't clearing and he needs an oral he needs an IV antibiotic. So she rang anyway and she couldn't get an appointment with us for the Thursday. So this was early Thursday afternoon. So she said to me, you have two choices. You can either bring him to the ED or you can come back tomorrow and we can try and get an appointment for the surgical assessment unit. And I just made a judgment call at the time. I said, like, um, if I drop him home for the night, because he's very independent and he's cognitively, he's perfect, physically not so great. Um, but that's unfortunately old age. So I decided to take him to, to a and um, because on, just on, on the Thursday, because also on the Thursday, all the th- and and the, the GP sounds like lovely and and doing her very best. She couldn't guarantee that if you had waited until the Friday, that she could get him in to the surgical unit. That's the point, Patricia. Um, that's exactly it, and that's why I decided. Um, I made the judgment call. You know, I was thinking to myself, I'll take him to to ED, and we'll tough it out. Um, I I would have sort of assumed that maybe after 12, 14, 16, 18, 24 hours that he would have been admitted to a ward someplace. But he when we w- went out there, he was obviously triaged and seen. Um, they said they were concerned about the ulster um, and that the ulcer had become septic and that he also had cellulitis. So they said, look, he needs an oral, he needs an IV antibiotic. So I basically was with him until I'd say about 3 a.m. on the Friday morning when he went down to a unit at the back of into a cubicle at the back of A&E in an area known as the clinical decision unit. And of course, that was that was into Friday morning. I had to go very early Friday morning. I was working Friday. I, I had stuff to do. So my father came back from England um, where he where he was working last week. So he booked an early flight back and he was there all day the Friday. Then it was it was on the Saturday. Then my dad got a phone call to go back out to the hospital because my granddad had deteriorated at that stage and had become very confused and was trying to get out of bed, was ripping out the IV line. God, he know. had become delirious. And that, that cubicle, that cubicle that he was in, was he in that cubicle on his own? Yeah. He was in the cubicle on his own. Well, and then um, what, nurses and care assistants just popping in and out to see how he was getting on, was it? They were they they were they were in and out to him. But you see, when we went out on the Saturday, he had to be moved again because he he was becoming quite difficult to handle because of the delirium that had set in. Um and And is that very much out of character for him, Connor? 
Oh, 100%. Like, my yeah. granddad is normally a very, very lucid individual. Like, he's he's very, very independent. He lives on his own. He still drives. Um, He's able to do the vast majority of things without assistance. You know, he manages all his own affairs, financial and everything like that. Um, but he was just getting a bit confused and didn't know where, and, and probably because of how unwell he was. Well, you see, that's it. And it's it's very common. Like my sister is a nurse and luckily um, she works in Dublin. And I was I was FaceTiming her at one stage from the cubicle with my granddad because UHL is so busy and so overrun um, and so understaffed that like it's it's quite difficult out there to get information because the staff are, are so, so busy and we know from the HICRA report last year that there is a shortage of 34 nursing posts alone. And like, to be honest, I I only saw the headlines of that HICRA report when it first came out last year. But I actually went and read it on Monday and I could have wrote it last weekend. Goodness. Like nothing. And, and nothing obviously it changed. wasn't, and I'm assuming it wasn't when you were in the in the ED, it wasn't just your granddad. Was, was there very obviously other older people? On their own, there were there were a lot of older people. Like like if you if you fast forward now to the Monday, he was back out on a corridor on a trolley on the Monday, and then we got word Monday afternoon that that he might be going to Croom, but that it couldn't be confirmed, and they didn't know when. And when I went out Monday afternoon, um, late Monday afternoon, he was very confused again, and there was another man behind him on another trolley, very confused and. You know, my granddad at one stage was inclined at the time because he was so confused nearly to go over to that other man's trolley because he thought that other man's bag of uh, clothes or whatever was his bag of clothes. Oh, but like, yeah. there's no dignity or yeah, there's no... Yeah. There's so you 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 finally got word and, and he got moved to Croom and I'm assuming it's only since he's moved to Croom on the Monday, which is now 100 hours after he was on that trolley, it's only at that point you you can start to see him getting better. Oh, 100% like as in I went out to Croom Tuesday afternoon to see him. And the first thing that struck me when I went out there was how calm and tranquil um, and relaxing the place was. Like in comparison to being in UHL, you, you know, it was really peaceful out there. Um and when I went out there, he was in relatively he was in relatively good form. He was so exhausted from being in the A and E that he basically he was nodding off in the bed as I was sitting there, and I went away after about an hour. But like, I mean, only for my sister going out there. My sister, who's a nurse, came down from Dublin at the weekend, and she went out there firstly because she was concerned about him, but she also went out there to give him a bit of a wash. Because he hadn't been washed in the time that he was in A A A and E, like he like I got a bag of clothes, for example, out of that that my granddad had worn more or less when he was in A and E and like I not being funny or anything, but I took one look at them and they went straight into my wheelie bin. Oh, um I know. And was was he being fed? Did he eat while he was there or he he, he was he was being fed okay. and in, in fairness I have to say to the staff out there like the staff in A&E in general were excellent. Like they did their very best, but like there isn't enough of them. 
That's the and problem. He shouldn't, and he shouldn't have been there. And, and, and I know, I know you'll have experts saying, oh, look, it's down to the time of the year. There's flu, there's COVID. It's, it's just, it always happens at this time of year. But, but that, that excuse just isn't acceptable anymore, is it? Well, 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 like, it's the whole thing. You just hit it on the, you hit the nail on the head there, Patricia. Oh, it happens every year. Like, and that's part of the problem because in the Midwest, and I know it affects North Cork as well, because, you know, people up as far as Charleville and, and, and places like that, like, they depend on on UHL and, and everything like that. And we've just come to a situation in the Midwest where we just shrug our shoulders and we say, Oh, that's acceptable. But like the the fact of the matter is like the next nearest model four hospital to you in your studio is CUH. And mm. if you look at the numbers on trolleys in CUH, if there's a hundred and twenty in UHL or a hundred, there's it's usually fifty or something in CUH. So like there's while we do have a problem with overcrowding in general and the trolley crisis in general in, in, in our Model 4 hospitals, like there's a specific UHL problem. It's always... It's, it's uh, and whenever, it yeah, is. every time we're reading out trolley watch figures, particularly the ones from the INMO, you can be guaranteed that uh, University Hospital Limerick will be, will be absolutely top of uh, the list. And then this, and, and I started in my introduction with the HSE again this week, urging people not to attend uh, the A&E. I mean, and that's all well and good if you don't need hospital treatment. But for those like your granddad, they have no choice, but they have to attend. He needed an IV drip. He's not going to get that anywhere else except at a hospital. Yeah, and that's part of the problem. And my real concern is, and I've gotten it anecdotally through my through my my work as a county councillor. Like I've had elderly people say to me whether it whether I be whether I'd meet them or whether I'd be canvassing or whatever, and they'd say to me, "Whatever you do, like if I get sick, I don't want to end up out there." And that's actually really scary because you have people who could potentially like, you know, who may need medical treatment for something and who could be sitting at home and who could be very like, I'm not going out there. I'm not going out there. But, yeah, that's ex- yeah, Connor, that's ex- uh, sadly, that is exactly uh, what is uh, hap- happening. And I know um, UHL have issued an apology to, to your granddad. Well, they they issued a statement, but like... Um, they issued a statement which cons- contained an apology within it, but like this isn't particularly just about my granddad and him being my granddad. This is about the fact that like somebody at the age of eighty-seven was on a trolley for a hundred hours, um, and that can't happen again, and that shouldn't happen again. And we need, for example, we need, for example, the government to instruct the HSE at the very least to lift the recruitment ban to try and see can they fill some of the vacant posts that are out there because who's going to come back from Australia if they can only get a three-month temporary contract? And unless we fill some of those posts, we're never going to... Like, we're in a a spiral here where this happens every single year. So, like, like, the apology that was issued in that statement, look... That is what it is. But what I would really like to see is like 
like what's going to change action this, like? yeah action to make sure that they won't be in another few weeks having to apologise to another family or to another group of patients okay listen uh, Connor. thank you for speaking to us and pass on our best wishes to your granddad but uh, thanks for joining us on the programme this morning Thank you, Patricia. Good morning to you. That is uh, Labour Councillor Connor uh, Sheehan, who is a Labour Councillor in uh, Limerick with his granddad's uh, story. 0818103103. John Paul's taking your calls. You can text her WhatsApp to 0862103103. Margaret uh, says, has that Councillor Connor been living under a rock the last 5, 10, 15 years? The issues in UL... UL Hospital, um, the A&E has been widely known and highlighted in the media. Is he only talking about it now because it's knocked on his no on his own door? I do hope his granddad makes a full uh, recovery. In fairness, uh, I don't think he thinks it's something that's only happened now because he did reference the point uh, that there's been an ongoing problem at University Hospital at Limerick. But when it does come to your own door, I think you see the reality of the effect that it can have on someone. Close to 2,000 pubs closing in Ireland over the last 30 years. Years, would declaring our beloved authentic Irish pub on the UNESCO World Heritage List would it help to protect them into the future? Well, it's a suggestion by Fianna Fáil TD Neve Smith. Neve, of course, is chair of the Oireachtas Committee on Tourism, Arts and Culture. And to see how local pub owners would feel, I'm joined by Michael O'Donovan, who is, of course, chair of the Vintners Federation here in uh, Cork. Good morning to you, Michael. Good morning, Patricia. Now, were you aware that the Tourism Committee had suggested trying to push the traditional pub on the UNESCO list? but I don't think they were aware of what we had done either last year because last year we actually applied for this um, and we have been working on it for the last uh, number of months um, to get a... It's, it's to get the pub, the uniqueness of the Irish pub listed on the UNESCO list and um, we made an application uh, last July on, on, on this issue. Um, now, it's a rather long um, application process um, and what we've done is it's not actually the bricks and mortars of any one unique pub. Uh, what we've done is we've we've um, applied for the UNESCO heritage um, application and it's for, you know, the uniqueness of the Irish pub in the, the atmosphere, the character, the music, the storytelling, the meeting place. Um, that's what we've applied for. And our colleagues in Northern Ireland, we met actually um, last or in December, and they're going uh, hopefully joining us because they think it's a very good idea. Um, and uh, what happened in the um, the tourist um, uh, committee um, will help us again along the road, hopefully, uh, in doing this. So we've we've started the we've set the, the ball the ball rolling and and just to, to, to for people who maybe are, are unaware every year Ireland we have the chance to add to UNESCO's list of intangible cultural uh, heritage yes. you know for example we've the the Irish list has included the the Ilan, Ilan piping Irish harping and and hurling so you know there's nothing to say we uh, we couldn't put the Irish pub onto it yeah, the committee they, 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 that assess the applications, they only meet really on a, an ad hoc basis. So we're waiting really for the decision um, with anticipation of what's going to happen in that regard. So uh, we've made our application to them. Um, we've given the information, obviously, on that application form. Um, and we're just waiting now for when the committee meets. Um, it's obviously it's a it's a it's 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 a private committee. It's not known, so um, so we have to wait for them to come back to us 
um, with it. So we're hopeful that um, it might progress and that we'll be able to to go further with it. Yeah, because there there is something, Michael, very unique about a traditional Irish pub. And we're talking about the traditional pubs as opposed to the big super pubs and the more modern pubs. But the, the traditional Irish pub, there's something very unique about them. Yeah, look, they're... Unfortunately, as you said there earlier, they they are disappearing and, you know, we have to try and protect them because everywhere you go around the world, they're trying to replicate them. So, you know, like when tourists come here and they fill out uh, forms for Fault Ireland or Tourism Ireland when they're leaving the country, you know, the pub is always number one or number two on their list. So if we don't protect it, um, and, you know, in many rural areas, it creates employment for a lot of young people it gives them their first uh, start of a job in life and it's a great I suppose um, learning curve for them to see how you know to interact with people Um, and culturally it's just so important for many communities because now it's the last meeting place for a lot of communities and you know I keep saying and look we, we, we hear it all the time there's so many options in pubs now it's not all about drink you know many do tea and coffees if they don't there's a non-alcoholic uh, um, lot, normally there's lots of options now of non-alcoholic drinks but it's just a meeting place for people to come and socialise and meet um, and you know it's, it's just an important part and, and fabric of our community and it's the history of our community as well Yeah and uh, as you say we've exported uh, the Irish pub I mean many cities try overseas to recreate them they never quite get there but, but but there isn't a city in the world that you won't go to where you won't see some kind of an Irish pub. No, and look, this is an argument that we're having with government at the moment. Everywhere else, is, as you said, is trying to replicate them. And with government policies at the moment, uh, we're kind of going down the road of trying to, to close as many of them as we can and get rid of them. And I don't know whether the government wants everybody to be working in office jobs or pharma jobs or computer jobs, but, you know... If if social outlets disappear, um, I'm not so sure a lot of these big companies might be looking at us because it goes hand in glove. They come here, uh, yes, for the workforce, yes, obviously, because the highly educated workforce, but they need to socialise as well and enjoy themselves when they're in their downtime. So, you know, uh, the government has to be cognizant of that as well at the moment with all the... I suppose, the input costs and business costs that they're hoisting upon us. Um, And we're seeing it every day with businesses struggling and having to make big decisions to close. So, you know, we're we're imploring on the government to to help us for the pubs to survive. Yeah, there's a lot of focus lately, Michael, on the restaurant uh, trade, because unfortunately we're seeing a number of high profile uh, restaurants, including here in Cork, uh, closing. Would you have concerns for some of those smaller pubs as, as we go into 2024? Um, yeah, and like I suppose food-led pubs really, especially um, um, you know it's 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 high volume, low margin um, product that they're producing, and with all the you know look minimum wage has gone up, but you know we did a survey last September there was here in Cork City, you know, it was 13.50 was really the, the basic wage that was being paid. And there was an expectation then on the 1st of January that everybody got a pay rise of that 140. So talking to most publicans, it was kind of 150, it went up. But then when you raise your, your, your pay point, you know, your employer's PRSI went up as well mm-hmm. on the 1st of January. So it wasn't just the 150, it was the, the hike in the, the, the employer's PRSI and our sick days, and went from three to five, and look, most of the 
Um, most employers that I know, the publicans, if you were, you know, if good staff and if they were out sick previously, they were looked after um, as they are now. But I suppose the big problem now is people can go out sick and um, we're a, a, a forward-facing business. So if somebody goes out sick on a day, you know, they have to be replaced that day because the business can't survive in many instances without those people. So um, you're having the burden then of having two wages for that job. And, it's you know, a knock-on effect. It's, it's, a, it's a low margin yeah. industry, so that's, that's, a, that's a big issue, you know. OK, well, we'll keep a, a close eye on this UNESCO World Heritage listing and we wish you luck with it, uh, Michael. But in the meantime, thank you for that and thanks for joining us. Good morning. morning. Some reaction coming into Connor, uh, the young councillor from Limerick who joined us in the last hour talking about his poor old granddad uh, spending a hundred hours. And it was just, I think it was listening to him talk about his granddad who's, you know, is normally quite a hail and a hearty 87 year old, you know, living independently. Sounds like a great man. Uh, But the confusion then when he was, you know, put when he was feeling so unwell and then put in, you know, in a very unnatural environment, being left on a trolley and then the lack of sleep and to hear him talk about his granddad getting, you know, very confused and agitated and that's very difficult for family members to watch a loved one who they know normally this is completely out of character for. It's really, really difficult. Okay, a number of people on about University Hospital Limerick, including Mary, says, Patricia, after listening to Connor speak about the experience of his granddad in University Hospital Limerick, I think we will need this problem solved. The only way it'll be solved is if the HSE and the government sit down and work it out. They need to look at the vast areas that this hospital is currently serving. You have people coming bordering Cork, Clare, Kerry and of course the whole of uh, County Limerick. Before you had ED departments in Barrington's Hospital, St John's and also Ennis General and of course there was an ED department in Mallow. It's the lack of the EDs is causing the problem said Mary. And then somebody else I think rather meanly says how many times has Connor contributed to radio, TV newspaper interviews before about the problems at University Hospital Limerick and its safety. Is he only raising it now because it, it concerns him and concerns his granddad? I think that's a bit, that's actually a bit mean. And he's a young councillor. I think he only became a councillor in 2019. I don't follow all the comings and goings of Limerick County Council, but I'm well sure that there probably isn't a meeting of Limerick County Council where they don't at some stage talk about the problems at University Hospital Limerick. And no doubt Connor has contributed to that as well. And in fairness, I did hear him say in another interview, he didn't want to go public himself. It was his mother pushed because his mother uh, doesn't want anyone else to go through what her father, Connor's grandfather, has been going through. So I think that's a bit mean uh, to say that. And then Dan says, Patricia, University Hospital, Limerick's A&E always comes across as hell on earth. It's no wonder it constantly breaks trolley records when you look at all of the other A&Es that have closed, uh, Ennis, uh, Nina, and then it's the Mary had mentioned Barrington's and, and St. John's. They closed all of those accident and emergency departments and then funneled everything into University Hospital Limerick. Do you know, says Dan, that they're still adding more rooms onto UHL, but if it just can't support the entire Midwest uh, region. Yeah, and Connor was pointing out... Um, 
there is a lack of staff as well. So you have all of these extra people and then you have a lack of staff. It just, it, it really is just, it just sounds like a nightmare. And actually, you know, what they say all politics is local. Let's bring it home. Uh, while we have many of our listeners will attend University Hospital Limerick, the majority of our listeners, if you need an A&E, it's po- possibly Cork University Hospital is where we will uh, end up. And I saw just this morning that the president of the Irish Association of Emergency Medicine, he's warned that there is a massive capacity issue in our hospitals and he cited the emergency department at Cork University Hospital this morning. He says it's running at over 300% capacity. Now the President of the Irish Association of Emergency Medicine is Professor Conor Deasy. He also happens to be a consultant in CUH so he'll know exactly what is happening in his own hospital. And he was talking about the fact that this morning there's 117 people waiting uh, in the A&E department at CUH of which 45 people are are on uh, trolleys as they are awaiting to go up to the wards to go into a bed. Professor Deasy said at times like this when there is a, a huge huge surge. He said they're simply not able to cope with it effectively and they're not able to cope with it safely adding the patients who were among the most ill, they had been seen but he said others have been waiting, some of them have been there since 7pm last night. He said it's a dreadful situation for patients waiting he also outlined the difficulties for staff trying to provide care to all of them he said these patients deserve to be in a hospital bed, they deserve to be in a ward and they're being accommodated on corridors His comments come, of course, as departments right across the country are continuing to experience a high level of presentations this week and that's a lot of it is due to high illness rates which is associated with winter viruses. I mean we've got that RSV is still around, there's definitely flu, there's COVID is still out and about. Professor DC said there is an issue where it seems people have become immune to the level of overcrowding in the country's hospitals and he said it's costing lives. He described how mitigating efforts are being made across all of the hospitals. He says they've seen a 33% increase in emergency department attendance so far this month compared to this time uh, last year. And he said in over 75 year olds, there's a 40% uh, increase. That is truly shocking. And then he referred to a meeting that was held last winter with the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, who's still the Minister for Health this winter. And last winter, we had Stephen Donnelly saying we can't have another winter like last winter. And it looks like the very same thing is happening. Professor DC described how working last night, he met patients who had actually held off going to the hospital for several days because they'd been hearing about how busy the emergency departments were. He said, what we don't want is patients who really need medical attention, missing out on that medical attention. And they do it for fear of long queues and chaotic emergency departments. He said, it is not a good reflection when patients are being asked to seek help in other places. He said, help should be available in the right places when they need it. Yeah, and it it isn't, he's right, it isn't good enough uh, to constantly hear on the media that the HSE are saying, you know, please don't go anywhere near your accident emergency department, seek help somewhere else. Because there are certain times, okay, we know that there'll always be a very small proportion, I think, of people who will go to an A&E department when they should have gone to their GP or they should have gone to their the out of hours um, out of hours service. But that's a very small proportion because I think nobody is deliberately going to put themselves into a position where you turn up at an ED, ED, ED department. Some people last night at seven o'clock and here we are at, you know, 
nearly half 11 the following morning and people are still sitting uh, waiting to be seen unless you're very unwell you're not going to put yourself uh, through that so yeah I think he's right saying that you know it isn't right and asking people to seek help in other places sometimes you have no choice but you need to go to hospital 0818103103 John Paul's taking your calls you can text or WhatsApp to 0862 C103 Jobs General operative uh, positions are available in a production facility that's in the Connor area. Now, your own transport is essential. 086 Avonmore Electrical, they've got a vacancy for an accounts administrator. Now, you need to have a minimum of three years' experience. CVs, please, to breed at avonmore-electrical.com. Closing date is Friday the 9th of uh, February. Tria Oil, they're looking for a rigid truck driver. It's for distributing oil products and services in the Clonakilty Bandon areas. You can contact Owen at 087-7717-035. And Dramina GAA, they've got a vacancy for a grounds caretaker. It's to work as part of their community employment scheme. Further details, please email Evelyn O'Keefe at dealvalley.ie for more details. And you can find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. cmig.ie Now Threshold, the national housing charity and alone who represent older people have highlighted the 40% increase in older people who are experiencing housing difficulties and that was just last year compared to the previous year. The two charities uh, addressed TDs and Senators yesterday to share their concerns and joining me from Threshold is Anne-Marie O'Reilly who is Threshold's National Advocacy Manager. Good morning to you Anne-Marie. Good morning. Now while a lot of focus on housing um, needs is about first-time buyers. Do you believe there's not enough focus on our older population when it comes to their housing needs? Um, So unfortunately, that's what we found when we commissioned a piece of research. And what the researchers uh, saw was that while there's a great awareness uh, of the needs of housing, older people in terms of housing and the likely growing need, uh, there's not enough has been done to plan for that and to ensure that that need is met. And so we took the opportunity yesterday when addressing the TDs and senators to stress that, uh, that we really need to to take urgent action to formulate plans and start making sure we deliver the housing that's needed by older people. And some of those, you know, the needs of older people will be a bit more specific uh, as some age, some will, you know, um, need greater supports, whether that be, you know, doing pieces around the house or their physical and, uh, and mental health needs as well. And we have an ageing population. So this mm-hmm. is a situation if if we're already struggling now, Going forward, the situation mm. could even get worse. Yes, yeah, so our concern really is the growing number that are living in the private rental sector. So while <clears throat> obviously for an older person who owns their own home, they may require supports as well. And there are schemes out there. Granted, they're not perfect. Work 
work does need to be done. Um, but when someone is in a, a renting privately, uh, the access to schemes isn't as straightforward. And particularly if that person then receives a notice of termination and has to move, they may very well have to move to a completely different area and um, get linked in with um, services, with health services and so on and so forth. And that can be long. That can be complicated and it means that that person could go without for, for quite some time. So what we found in the research was that the private rental sector isn't, as it stands currently, is certainly not a suitable uh, place for, for people to, to age and grow old in. Um, much greater security is needed uh, to, to make sure people can live with dignity into their older years. And are you seeing an increase in the amount of older people <coughs> who are living in private rental? accommodation. Yes, so um, certainly for the last number of years in Threshold, we have seen a growing proportion of our clients come from older age groups. Um, so even when well, we're even looking at people in their 40s and 50s and that cohort growing, because as we know, um, the older you get, the the least that you know, it's less likely you'll buy your own home, and and unfortunately in Ireland, you know, owning your home really is the the greatest security you can have. So we're looking at those people in their forties and fifties, as well as those in their sixties up, who are renting, and we are seeing a growing number of them. And then we did see from the census data uh, that was released there last summer that there's been an eighty three percent increase in people over the age of sixty five who are renting. That's about seven thousand more people of that age group renting that than there was in 2016. That is a significant increase. Oh, they're, yeah, they're, they are huge uh, numbers. And of course, mm-hmm. if, if somebody is working uh, full time and, and paying their rent and, mm-hmm. and everything is fine, mm-hmm. but then if they retire, I, I'm assuming mm-hmm. on a pension, it can be very mm-hmm. hard, particularly with rising rent costs. Yes, exactly. Yes. So that's uh, one of the recommendations in the report does relate to the adequacy of the state pension. And while somebody who's in receipt of the pension uh, would be able to access uh, HAP, there's no guarantee a landlord will accept HAP, unfortunately. So yesterday uh, when we spoke um, to the TDs and Senators, a client did accompany us and he spoke of his situation. Um, He's now in the pension. He lives in a house share and after and his landlord won't take HAP. So after he pays his rent, he has got somewhere in the region of 250 uh, euro to live on for the month. Oh. Uh, so, it, yes, it puts extreme pressure on people financially. And it means people have to make very, very difficult decisions about um, what they um, don't um, spend their money on. And maybe, you know, to the detriment of their own health, particularly if they're cutting back on items such as healthy food or their heat or things like that. So while it may not be the experience of um, all, uh, for those that do experience it, it's a very difficult way to live. And and I'm also thinking of of, uh, an older person living in in an area, maybe living in an area all of their lives. And then for whatever reason, Mm -hmm. their private rented accommodation is no longer Mm -hmm. available. The landlord wants it back. Mm-hmm. Very hard mm-hmm. then to try and find suitable accommodation in the area where perhaps they've lived all their lives. Yes, exactly. And that's something else we found in the research. So <clears throat> there's a number. And while for anyone who, who has to leave their accommodation is facing, you know, a very, very stressful time uh, for an older person. That's it. They could have lived there for, for much of their life and um, they have a home that suits their needs. 
uh, that it's a rent that they can afford. And then if they do have to leave, yes, they may have to move further afield to an area they don't know. They don't have their support network, their friends, their community, but also the house may not meet their needs either. Uh, so, you know, in the research, we had one of the interviewees spoke about living at the top of the stairs in the apart, you know, in the uh, building he was in and it becoming increasingly difficult to climb those stairs. Well, and we had someone else speak about having to go to viewings and rocking up with their walking stick and wondering, sure, who's going to want to take me? And unfortunately, and it, it did come out in the research as well, you know, um, from the landlord uh, representative groups, they were saying, well, it's not a suitable place for for older people to live because, you know, a landlord may worry, well, you know, as that person gets older, will their health deteriorate? Will there suddenly be a burden on the landlord to provide care? And while that may not be the case, it, it is a it is a, a fear or a concern. Uh, so it really doesn't provide for, as you know, a, a safe, comfortable retirement uh, for, for, for people. Would some older people, Anne-Marie, live in substandard accommodation, would you be aware of? <clears throat> yes, certainly. And um, that is certainly the case. And while it's um, one of the issues that comes in from renters all the time into threshold people who are living in accommodation that just doesn't meet the standards, you know, we've certainly come across a couple of very severe cases uh, when we did the research um, people living in homes, but one particular couple now that comes to mind, they were living in a home where there was significant levels of black mould, which is detrimental to health. But unfortunately, they were so fearful of losing that home and not being able to find somewhere else. They didn't want to 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 speak to the landlord about it. Um, so and this is where I guess the threshold advisors come in and can really help and support somebody with that. And we understand that the fear that people have, uh, but also they do have rights um, and we, we will help them through that, whether that's giving them the information they need or talking to the landlord on their behalf to try and get the, the issues uh, fixed. Um, but yeah. it's 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 no way for someone to live. Absolutely. And then somebody's bringing up the issue that if uh, someone's in private rented accommodation and the house needs to be adapted for the older person's mm. independent mm-hmm. uh, independence, mm-hmm. is that possible? What what happens there? Yeah, so it, it can be done, but obviously it, the landlord would need to be involved in that and everything and be give the permission for the, the work to take place. And um you know, from what we understand and from Alone's work in this, who who are our partner in the research, there can be a resistance or reluctance to doing it. Um, so, you know, if they put in the, the, the handrails, maybe it's a stair lift, maybe it's a wet room conversion of the of the bathroom. And then that person, you know, um, move the landlord maybe then decides they want to sell or maybe the person, you know, passes and the, the home is going to go to somebody else. There's a concern, well, I'll have to take all that stuff out now and it won't be an attractive option uh, for someone else coming in to buy or to rent it. So there, and it, it can seem like a lot of work and hassle perhaps also. So there doesn't tend to be uh, much take up um, by landlords. Uh, to real get that work done for it's a, it's a, yeah. a real real uh, uh, pity mm-hmm. but this is mm-hmm. an, this is an issue that we've been I, I think I think since the day when the we got rid of the bedsits we always seem mm-hmm. to have a lack of housing mm-hmm. for single people I mean it's it's across mm-hmm. all age groups but now particularly mm-hmm. for for those older people that that you're talking about mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so I suppose we, for so long, um, were the path was buy your own home. And, you know, if you weren't going to buy your own home, you'd, you'd be getting social housing. Um, but unfortunately, uh, that option isn't as available as it once was. And um, that has really uh, shifted things and made things very, very different. Uh, so we do see more and more single people and older single people or older people on, even if they're, um, you know, in you know, a, a couple or have a family, maybe not on as big as incomes anymore. And for whatever reason, home ownership wasn't an option. So it, it they're then left with, well, renting, which was only ever really considered and treated as a um, transitional tenure. You rented in your 20s, maybe your early 30s, and then you got your own home and that was it. You know, but we've, we're, we're seeing a huge shift and change, particularly in the last um 10 to 15 years in that regard and we have to start uh, planning and thinking about housing differently. Yeah, for sure. Do you feel you got a good hearing yesterday at the TDs and Senators, Emery? Mm, yes, yes. So even Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When we published the, the piece last year, there was a really good reception, you know, and then yesterday from the TDs and senators. So it was an opportunity for us to go in and speak to them directly on it. So we'll, we'll continue to engage with them, um, you know, on, on these matters. And they're, you know, they have people coming into their constituency offices. So, so they know, they see, they, they are aware uh, of the issues. It's just, I guess, we have our recommendations. We were really stressing those yesterday to show them what, can be done and what needs to be done um, uh, to to make sure that we, we can meet the housing needs of older and ageing people. OK, well done. Well done. Listen, Emery, thank you for that and thanks for joining us on the programme. Good morning to you. That no is Anne Marie O'Reilly, who is with Threshold and she is their National Advocacy uh, Manager. And actually, can I just stay on the whole issue of renting, etc., because... I had a WhatsApp in earlier from a landlord, a completely different issue, but just to see, does anybody have advice uh, here? Uh, Just wondering, can anybody help, please? I'm a landlord and I have a prepay power meter. It was put in by a previous tenant. No problem at all with the tenant, but I've tried several times with prepay power to have the meter removed. I've been trying to have it removed since 2017. It's amazing how they've no problem putting one in, uh, but now no action from them when I want it removed. So obviously the tenant who got it put in previously has now moved and either the landlord is back living in the house or whoever's living in the house now doesn't want prepaid power anymore. Anybody else had a problem getting a prepaid power meter removed? And I'm assuming there's no way of just bypassing it and going on to bill pay. Uh, If anybody has advice for our listener, please, it's a prepay power meter trying to get it removed. It's in 
And in, uh, I mean, since 2017 seems absolutely crazy that you will be waiting that long. 0818 103 103 if anyone has advice there. And there is a water burst at Ballinvoher, Castletown Roach. And we're getting reports in that water is gushing out onto the roadway. I'm assuming the council and Ishka Aaron are on their way to sort that out. But for anybody driving in that area, please be careful. Uh, Ballinvoher, Castletown Roach, gush, water gushing out on to the roadway. Email Patricia now with your story or comment. Cork today at c103.ie. Today on C103. Now, Skibbereen Heritage Centre has just launched a new genealogy resource which is online, and the best news is it is free to access. Terry Carney of the Skibbereen Heritage Centre uh, joins me along with their resident genealogist, and that is uh, Margaret Murphy. Uh, good morning to you, ladies. Good morning. Good morning, Patricia. Thanks so much for having us. Well, you're very welcome, as always. Terry, let me start with you. There is huge interest in uh, genealogy. And is that why you decided to launch this resource? A massive interest, um, Patricia. Would you believe it's the second most common pastime in the world now outside shopping? Wow. (laughs) (laughs) That, that, That doesn't surprise me. Yeah, everybody's researching their roots, which is fantastic. And Margaret gets so many general emails every day really about asking about all these different questions so we said we try our hand at podcasting we put together this resource and then direct people to it and it's also even if you're not interested in genealogy you know if you're trying to find burial records there's a bit about that and it's just I found it really interesting to look at the society of the time through the different eras as well so hopefully it just makes for interesting listening anyway even if you're not terribly into genealogy. And Margaret is knowing where to begin is that one of the hardest parts when people are thinking oh I'd love to trace my family roots I'd love to find out more about where I came from but where do I begin? Yeah there would be but there you would have to start from a strong foundation Patricia and it's asking the senior members of your family your parents your grandparents great grandparents just as many questions, direct them at the older members of the family and write it down. It's vital that you write it down because you may not get to researching the information that you've collected straight away. But if you write it down and jot it down, then at some later stage you can go and you're hitting the record and you're searching with the right information. Um, I, a lot of my work and a lot of the clients that come to me they come and they may just have misinformation or they didn't start by asking relatives or senior members of the families first. So they kind of go in a roundabout as opposed to going direct at the correct line. Yeah, so it's to get names of grandparents, great-grandparents, rough idea of when they may have been born. That kind exactly. of information is... And the, exactly, Um obituary, you know, mortuary cards, any information that you can collect about senior members of the family. Census records are a very, very good, strong base to start with because they provide information about those that were born in the 1800s, but also those that were just born at the turn of the the 1900s going forward. So identifying the parish, identifying the location or even the address of your ancestry, because that would help as well when you're going in then to complete a search. And as Terry mentioned, um, it, it's a five-part uh, podcast, and I'm, I'm halfway through it. It, it, it really is. It's a, it's a brilliant, brilliant uh, listen. Uh, Terry, you used uh, for the podcast. You, you looked at your own uh, ancestry. Um, what, what, what did you discover? I mean, the one thing that I found was great about you, you. Your was your mother's side of the family 
they were known as the, the O'Sullivan Pretties. Yes, yes, a pet name, Patricia, a pet name. And again, these are almost forgotten now. I mean, we in West Cork still remember them, but great swathes across Ireland don't know what the pet name of their family is. And particularly in areas where you use a lot of O'Driscolls, O'Sullivans, McCarthy's, these pet names were given. And you can find those in the 19th century records. And where they came from, I mean, we won't say the obvious with pretty. Oh, it has to be. Terry, Terry, it absolutely (laughs) has to be. I I would be claiming that one uh, straight away. I mean, but but it it was fascinating listening to you finding out about your great grandfather's house. Listen, I actually. John Carney. I almost felt I knew him, Patricia. I must admit, I am the genealogy done for the class. I see Margaret working her magic. She keeps all of this stuff in her head. I have no idea how she does. It just, I lose the generations. I need to write them down. So, unfortunately, I was that person who didn't listen to people when they were when I was younger. And then, unfortunately, I lost a lot of my family. So I was working blind, but I had a great guide with Margaret. And I really felt I got to know my ancestors. And that record from... The mid-19th century, the Griffith Valuation, episode three. I found that so interesting because there's different records. There's house, field and tenure books. But you can actually look up the size of the house that your ancestor lived in. You can have an approximate date for when they lived there. And my great-great-grandfather had built a relatively new house in 1849. Now, my good question is how on earth did he do that at the uh, yeah. uh, just after the Great Famine? But it was very interesting because you can see how society was evolving. His, his house was about 30 foot long and 16 foot wide. But next door, his mother's house, who had, she was living there in the 1820s, was only 11 feet long, Patricia. 11 feet long. Um, and and, and so I loved the fact that, you, you know, your great-grandfather uh, next door was his mother and then his brother was there as well. They all stayed together. And this was very common. Again, this is something that is almost forgotten now. The vast majority, well, the majority in this area in Skibbereen, the Devon Commission from 1845, showed that some 43% of the rural population lived and farmed communally under this system called the Rundale system. So they lived in little villages, in little clahans. So they were living opposite their cousin, their brother, their mother, and they actually farmed communally as well. They owned the land communally. And it's very, very interesting because this stretches all the way back into medieval times. And there I was looking at it, at my grandfather and his brother doing that. I, fabulous. I, I just found it It's so fabulous. And, and you put really good uh, show notes up with the podcasts as well, um, um, uh, Terry. And Margaret, th- th- there is a lot of records, isn't there, the people where you can go for information? There is. There is, there is a, lot of, a lot of records now available in the last 20 years genealogy searching or genealogy that the you know the tools for genealogy have really come online when we started first here in the heritage center there was very very little opposed to just parish records and census data but uh, the advent of um, the internet a lot a lot of more information has come available and um, there's directories but i would say the core four core records that you really need to tackle is the census church civil records Griffith's valuation or the tithes, so the land records, and they take you right back into the 1800s. But besides those, then, there is various other records that are available on the online genealogy sites that are all available by name on our website. But there's a lot, depending on the occupation of an individual, 
Um, there's yeah, there's ways and means of finding out an awful lot today, you know. Yeah, and I have to say, I can go down a rabbit hole when I go online to look at the the census. I, I love looking at the census, and and I love the fact that you can see uh, your ancestors' uh, signature. There's something wonderful about that. Exactly, and that's the very first of the uh, the Irish census kept the family return. So that's the sheet that you're looking at where your individuals, the family members are listed, but the signature of the of the individual in the house that made the return. In the US and in the UK, the enumerator collected all that data, wrote up another report, and that's all that you see online now. So Ireland is unique in that regard that it's the original return and the signature of your of your ancestor, which is quite unique. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's something very special about it. Terry, did you find out that your grandmother lied to get her pension about her oh, age? Oh, just a teeny <laughs> tiny little fib. I loved it, Patricia. Again, it kind of brings the personality of your ancestor to the fore, you know? Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's my great, my, my grandmother was one age in 1901 and she had aged 15 years by 1911. <laughs> So when I pointed this anomaly out to Margaret, we kind of twigged that the pension came in in 1908. But then she <laughs> Good reminded me a lot of people didn't know their age. Yeah, that is true. That is that is true. Would you blame them for God's sake? Would and then and then the census, um, I, you know, tell us a lot about society because it tells us the jobs that people did and and the, and the descriptions. What was the woman who was minding herself? Oh God, yeah, I love this. We had them, we, again, before they were online, we got, we bought the rolls from the National Archives way, way, way back in the early 2000s and we printed them all off. So we had them bound and I used to love reading through them because it was so interesting that you can actually tell a lot just from reading how people fill out the form. So there was a standard form, you know, the head of the household was supposed to fill it in. Sometimes you saw the woman filling it in and you'd be going, a woman. Um, but this was one of the funnier ones. I loved it. I got a fiddle laughing when I saw it. So you had, so the head of the household was supposed to fill in the whole sheet. So there was this whole family in one writing, the man, his wife and the children. And then down at the bottom, the mother-in-law living in the house oh. had, written in, had written in her own name uh, in a different writing. And her, they were allowed to say what occupation they gave. And she gave the occupation of minding herself. And I said, whoa, <laughs> you could see what was going on in that. Oh, even back then, there was rows uh, with the mother-in-law. And then I loved the one about the man whose occupation was walking around. A lot of them yeah, around today. You, you know, wouldn't you know, wouldn't you know, don't you know the personality of that man yeah. straight away? Yeah. You know, again, that got a bellow out of us. Uh, but they're just, they're fascinating to read because... They really tell us the mindset of people. They give us little glimmers. So it's all very well to look at records. But when you see a a personality shining through, it means so, so much. And, you know, Patricia, the rich and the wealthy were written about. They were written about in the newspapers, you know, the land records. There's a lot about them. These records are of our people. They're the annals of the poor, you know, so it's. It's respectful to do this, if yeah. nothing else. That's what I. That's the experience I found out of it. And I also found, I think I know my ancestors now, you know. 
That's um, that, that's what that's what I love when 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 you do any of this tracing work in your mind's eye, you, you start to build up a picture of these people that was your your great grandmother, your great grandfather, and you know they, they come to life in some yeah. way. I I think now, Margaret, you would be unaware of this, but both myself and Terry have a deep passion for graveyards. Um, she's but the only other person I know that loves graveyards as much as much as I do. But Margaret, graveyards are are, are a good place, certainly, and and a good source of knowledge. Exactly, like by just if you again starting out and asking the direct the, the correct questions to your to family members, identifying the parish or the location of where your ancestors are buried, reading the headstone, and just taking the data that's collected on the headstone. Now, not all graveyards have headstones, but again, a visit to a headstone can be very 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 worthwhile, or visit to a graveyard can be very very worthwhile just to see what information is provided on the headstone and start from there. Collect that when they died and roughly names of the individuals that are buried in that plot. Because again, extended versions of families were all buried in in graveyards or in graveyards uh, or in family plots. Mm. So you can glean an awful lot of information from graveyards. Yeah, that, it's all little bits of, of the jigsaw that you, you fit it all together. And and Margaret, I know a lot of people, uh, particularly a lot of people from overseas, America, uh, travel to West Cork to try to trace uh, their roots. And, and I know your work as a genealogist, that's a lot of the work that that you do. Do, do, do many of the people find graves and burial grounds of their ancestors? And is that can that be very emotional for those people? Extremely, and on my lunch hour there many a day during the summer, if I've identified the correct family for the individual that has asked the question, and then have through our own website and all of the records that we have up there under the Cork County Council project of digitising all of the, the graveyards within the greater Cork area, was again, very, very emotional. Very emotional to take somebody up a body into an old derelict house that were once their ancestors lived, or also bringing them to the foot of a grave where they can just have a minute's silence and, and, and say a prayer at that grave yeah. of their ancestors. Because a lot of the people that lived in, or, you know, that, that would have emigrated in, particularly after the famine, but more so in the 1900s, a lot of the people that returned to West Cork or anywhere in Ireland, they lived with their relatives, the Irish immigrants, their grandparents, the extended versions of their family. So sometimes I'd often find that an awful lot of people coming researching their Irish ancestor would have an awful lot of information because when they went to America, they spoke about home. Mm. They spoke and they told their families about their brothers and about their parents that if you ever return to Ireland, please look up this place. So an awful lot of people come armed with an awful lot of information, um, you know, and we, we can certainly assist them. But yes, certainly a visit to the graveyard can be quite a yeah. yeah. journey I, for a lot of people making making this journey through searching their family. And it's very, very worthwhile. And Margaret, are you a fan of people sending their DNA to ancestral websites? Uh, I've done myself. So yeah. It, 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 it can be... It, it, enough is not known. I find it fruitful in some instances. Now, sometimes, um, a lot of the time, particularly the way with Irish society in the 1800s, the population grew exponentially, so you have an extended version of one particular line in an area. So it's very, very hard to read through um, identifying your correct line. Sometimes DNA helps, and sometimes it can add to the rules of trying to, you know. know, find the correct line. To answer your question, enough isn't known about DNA, but it can be helpful particularly in those that would maybe have been adopted at birth or didn't know their biological 
parents or parents, it can be helpful in, in, in that regard. But taking it back, because with Irish records, we're working very much off a blank canvas in the 1700s. There's mm. very little information about the the ordinary person in Ireland at that time, unless you were landed or business class or, or, or you know, a, a merchant, from a merchant family. But again, DNA, it can be helpful and sometimes it, 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 it can't be. Yeah, you've got to be careful. You've got to be careful with exactly. it. All right, listen, it's absolutely fascinating. I would be directing everybody to go to uh, Skibbereen Heritage's uh, website and uh, you can click on the genealogy and all the podcasts uh, are up there. And Terry, are you busy as always at the centre? Absolutely, and we look forward to another busy year of welcoming people as well. And can I just say one other thing, Patricia? Yeah. Like, I've observed what it means to people when they've, when Margaret has worked her magic. We regularly have people bawling, crying, yeah. you know, emotional, full of them. And even um, John le Carre and David Cornwell, when, when he wrapped himself in the Irish flag, thanks to Margaret, it means a huge amount. And these people come back and come back and come back and call West Cork their home, and we welcome them. And that's an honour to do that. And as I said, I see Margaret working that magic every day. And it is an honour for me to enable that in some small way. Okay, well done. Well done. Um, uh, I'm envious, Margaret, of of your knowledge and the skill set that you have, because I do really believe it is a skill set. So continue. Good luck to your work. And Terry, pleasure as always to talk to you. Uh, No doubt we'll speak again. But thanks for joining us this morning, girls. No problem. Good morning. Bye bye. That is uh, Terry Carney, Skibbereen uh, Heritage Centre, along with their resident genealogist, Margaret Murphy. But please take a look at uh, skibheritage.com forward slash genealogy dash podcast. Well worth uh, a listen. And of course, the website itself is just a mine of information. We don't have uh, Jane Pickett. She's on a little bit of a break, so she's not with us this week. So hold hold off on any pet questions. But can I just stay with a kind of an animal related question that came in uh, earlier? from um, Heidi who was highlighting to me an online petition that's in the UK it's not here in uh, Ireland and it's uh, Heidi says I see that people in the UK are calling for cats to have the same rights as dogs in order to stop cruelty and to give them more protection cats feel pain just as we all do I would love to hear that such a law could be put in place here so I took a look at this it's one of these you know change.org where you get people to sign a petition and then it'll go to um, the government in the UK but it is the reason that it was set up was it was to do with the lady who had her beloved cat was killed by a very aggressive dog. And this particular aggressive dog had previously shown very vicious behaviour, but obviously the dog owner didn't do anything. And then when she looked into it, she discovered that under UK laws, dogs enjoy much more robust protection than cats. So what this petition is about in the UK, they want to change to the Dangerous Dogs Act so that owners can take legal action if their cats are harmed or killed by dogs due to negligence or malice intent seemingly it's not on the statute books uh, in England. So Heidi was saw that with interest and was wondering uh, do we need similar laws here and I, I would have to do a lot more research than I was able to do since I've come on air uh, Heidi. I'm trying to find out are if cats are protected or not. I mean, I did find on one thread that cats are uh, protected animals under Irish law. But in terms of dogs, any attack by a dog on a human or livestock is against the control of dog acts. But there needs to be proof, obviously, that the attack happened. But it says... Why it says livestock, human or livestock, cats are not specifically mentioned. So I don't know if the situation is in the UK is the same here or uh, not. And, you know, there's nothing worse than to have a much loved pet 
a cat, a dog, whatever it is, but to have it savaged by another animal. This, yeah, some would say isn't that nature, but it's just it's very, very difficult on the pet owner. So I simply don't know the answer, Heidi, whether we need to have laws in this country to protect cats or not. Maybe somebody else listening uh, knows the answer. Oh eight one eight one zero three one zero three, and then text in from somebody who was listening to my chat with Terry and Margaret when we were talking about genealogy. I said, listening to you there on the importance of our ancestors' signatures. Yeah, that's something if you've looked at any of the census online, it's lovely to see, you know, a a great-grandfather, great-grandmother or whatever and their signatures on the original uh, census. Anyway, this listener says, our son found his great-grandfather's signature on a poem that his great-grandfather had written while incarcerated in Spike Island in 1921. My son went on to write a song during COVID in his great-grandfather's honour and he actually released it a hundred years on in 2021 and it's on YouTube. Damien Coughlin, 1921, if anybody wants to take a look. That's a lovely, lovely thing to do. We had a landlord who was talking about prepaid power and there's a metre in the house that he's trying to get removed and he's having no luck getting it removed since 2017 and I don't know what the issue is and why you can't get it removed. Somebody says, tell that landlord to get on to the company and get the company to set the meter to on permanent and then you set up an account and then he can switch to another supplier if he wants. So rather than have the meter removed, you just get it set to on permanent so that you get become bill pay rather than pay by meter. I don't know if that's of any use to the landlord or not. Now, a number of people commenting on RTE and what's going on, on with RTE. Uh, they're back in the papers and back in the news uh, again and this is to do with the report that's out on the flop musical The Toy Show uh, which was staged in 2021 and has now come out that the it cost the licence fee payers, you and I, anyone who's paid a licence fee, 2.2 million, but it didn't have any approval from the RTE board. Deirdre Ballon Hassock says, I too am taken aback that there appears to be no accountability within our public service broadcaster. Should there not be a minister just overseeing RTE? Well, we do have a minister. It's not just for RTE, it's for... Uh, it's it's media. Well, there's a whole host. It's media, culture, tourism. That's uh, Catherine Martin. Her portfolio is huge. Would that help if there was a minister just for uh, RT? Or would some people see it as a waste? Maybe a junior ministry? I don't know. 0818103103. Jim and Skibreen says the message here is nothing seems to have changed. Oliver Callan has just been announced that he's to receive 150k for his show. Have they learned nothing? Why are they paying that much money for a one-hour show Monday to Friday, not to mind the additional staff that will go with that show. It's not just the presenter behind the microphone. There's a lot more costs involved. Eileen in Mitchestown says, I do hope that they do reform RTE. The thought that they're thinking of putting a levy on our broadband so that they can do what they want really maddens me. Well, I think we're going to be, we're going to start seeing a lot of changes and a lot of them, in fairness, are being headed up by uh, Kevin Backhurst, uh, the new uh, Director General. I mean, he's been very robust in making sure that nobody is overpaid and I mean I also saw that uh, it's something that Kevin Packhurst has put into place that details of outside speaking engagements, our involvement in panel discussions, our commercial ventures by RTE staff and RTE contractors and how much they're paid for it. They're going to be published every uh, quarter. It's a new register of external activities and it comes into effect from the 1st of February and the register will apply across news, current affairs and content uh, divisions because of course um, you know while we we find out every year the top 10 pay uh, the top 10 uh, 
the highest top 10 who were paid in RTE, you never get to see the additional money that they make as well. Now, according to this register, that's going to go public um, four times a year. And that's been put in place by Kevin uh, Backhurst. 0818103103. Hospitals and overcrowding in A&Es. This was kicked off because of my chat with Councillor Conor Sheehan from Limerick talking about his poor granddad, 87-year-old man, 100 hours on a trolley. God help him. Kevin Balanine says the same reason that CUH is at capacity is because they closed the fully operational A&E departments at Bantry and at Mallow. They also downgraded a lot of the older hospitals like Millbrook in Bandon, plus the community hospitals they used to offer for further services many years ago compared to what they're doing now. Everything moved into what we were told was going to be a centre of excellence. When you are in a system, our health service is excellent, but it's getting into that system can be the problem. And that problem is heightened by Cork University Hospital at its capacity. And I mentioned this morning that the one of the consultants there says that their ED department at CUH is running at 300% capacity, not just over capacity, 300% capacity. And I, I remember doing this programme all those years ago when they were um, closing the A&E uh, departments Everybody spoke about that. Everybody, like they spoke about this wonderful centre of excellence and all the experts would be there. And, you know, and if you were very unwell, it would be the place to go. But we we spoke about funneling everybody into one A&E department and what was it going to, to do? And, you know, we spoke about, you know, there would be people on trolleys, there wouldn't be enough beds. And exactly what has come to pass was what people worried about at the time. And, you know, Ken in Ballinine is right. When our health service works well, it is excellent. You talk to anyone who's been, gets into the system and gets through cancer patients in particular, will all talk about, you know, it's an amazing service that we provide. We have excellent staff, but they're just hugely under pressure particularly at our ED departments. And Eddie in Mahan says, uh, also cites and says it's, it doesn't get enough mention, the increase in uh, population in this in this country. Have the government not taken that into consideration and planned that we would need extra nurses, extra doctors to work in our hospitals? We're going to need extra beds with the amount of extra people that are living in this country. And that's talking about people who've come here to work, but also add to that the number who have come, uh, Eddie said, as you Ukrainian refugees, 100,000, the numbers who are coming seeking international uh, protection. Many of those are end up using our health uh, service and we're just, it's, that is therefore putting additional pressure onto our hospital network and uh, we don't seem to be planning for that at all. 0818 103 103, our lines are open. The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council where communities and businesses all across the county can get the support they need at corkcoco.ie Dukas Clonakilty Heritage, they hosting Margaret O'Dwyer. Now Margaret will speak on the principal houses in the parish of Barry Row from the 18th to the 20th century. It is on tonight. Clonakilty GAA Pavilion an 8 o'clock start and admission is €5 at the door. Kildallery Community Development their weekly lotto draw this afternoon at 4 in the community office with a jackpot of €12,100. The Inishannon Nakavilla Defibrillator Group will hold their annual fundraising night tomorrow night Friday in Barrett's Bar in Inishannon. Tables of four, €40. 
Proceeds are going towards maintaining the parish's 10 defibrillators and also training courses for those who wish to learn CPR. Parents Association of Skolmirna Trokra in Botovant are hosting an inter-school table quiz tomorrow night. It's in Botovant Secondary School. It's open to students from 3rd class to 6th class. Registration from 6.30. It starts at 7. Tables of 4, 20 euro. There will be a raffle and a shop on the night. And Rathmore Panto Puss and Boots opens in Rathmore Community Centre this Saturday, which shows also on next Wednesday, the 31st, and on Thursday, the 1st of February to Saturday, the 3rd of February. There's also matinees on Sunday, the 28th, and Sunday the 4th. The booking office is open daily between 2 and 6 and it's next door to Christie's Takeaway. You can contact 085 203 1730 and the proceeds from the Rathmore Panto go to the Kerry Parents and Friends Association. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie With 70% of cardiac arrests happening at home the chances are it will be a loved one or someone you know who who you will need to perform CPR and possibly save your life while not at home but at a wedding Edna Minahan from Rochestown was lucky to have her paramedic brother Kieran in close proximity and he helped to save her life that day Edna and Kieran Minahan join me this afternoon Uh, Good afternoon to you guys Hi, Patricia, how are you? I'm, I'm very well. Now, I'll chat to, to Kieran, who's the real hero of the day in a moment. But Edna, I suppose, uh, first to you, firstly, health-wise, um, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm I'm good. Um, I'm getting there. It's, it's a bit of a journey. Getting back to 100%, but I'm 90% there. So You're on the road. I'm on the road, well on the road now at this stage. Okay, so we need to go back to last August. You were at, was it a family wedding you were you were both at? Or? Yeah, it yeah. was Kieran's sister-in-law. Okay. Um, was getting married, so it was her wedding. So, great day out, everybody looking forward to it. All glammed up, the usual for a wedding. When did you start to feel unwell? Um, it wasn't until late in the evening. We'd had dinner the band had started. I was out dancing with my niece. Felt perfectly fine. There was nothing all day. I didn't feel anything all day. Um, I was out dancing with my niece and I was walking off the dance floor and my teeth started hurting me. Um, and sorry, sorry of, your teeth? Yeah, my teeth. Um, it kind of stopped me in my tracks. It was a very kind of um, on you. I can't describe the pain. Yeah. Um, but if I got it again, I would panic. You know, it, <laughs> yeah. it was it, it was an unusual pain. Um, so I went over. I said it to my husband. I said I a pain in my teeth. We couldn't figure it out. And then I suddenly started getting very hot and agitated. So I just said, "Look, we'll just go up to the room." So we went up to the room. And as soon as I walked in the door of the the room, I started throwing up in the bathroom. So, um, and then my teeth started hurting me again. And then I felt that I had pulled something in my chest um, from throwing up. Mm. Now, my husband was with me the whole time and he was rubbing my back and I was kind of saying, look, I'll feel better after this, that 
now that I've now that I've got sick, I thought I'd feel a whole lot better. I thought maybe it was something I had eaten or yeah, yeah, and you, you, and you throw up and you start to feel feel better again. Uh, absolutely. So I said, you know, that I I said I'm going to bed. I'll be fine. So he said he was going to ring Kieran, um, and there was a bit of uh, back and forth going. I was saying no, don't. There's no need and. Um, he was saying, no, I, I'm going to ring him. So while I'm giving out to him, he was actually ringing him. Now, the the reason why he was ringing Kieran was your brother Kieran is a paramedic. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah. OK. So your hubby so, is saying, Kieran will know what to do, kind of thing. Exactly. And he, like, he knew this wasn't, like, my husband knew this wasn't just a case of me getting sick. OK. Um, he, he just said he could tell... Um, just by my voice, he could see the pain that was in my eyes. That this wasn't just me, as I say, getting sick. There was something more to it. Um, so yeah, he rang Kieran and just said, you know, that I I had taken ill and would I come up to the room? Now at so, the, at this stage, did other than you thought you'd pull something? Did, did you have a sharp pain in your chest? No, no, no. So it was just. Um, the the only way I could describe it, like it, it there was no big massive ch- chest pain, you know, all across my chest, down my arm. There was nothing like that. It was just one particular spot in the middle of my chest, and it was literally about the size of my thumbprint. But as it went on, I was kind of rubbing it to try and move it. Do you know? Mm, I thought, yeah. You know, it was like maybe a trapped muscle or something. And I was trying to rub it to move it away. Um, But uh, to describe it, it felt like a very heavy person with a bony elbow leaning on me. Yeah, yeah. In just one particular spot. Yeah, a pressure, a pressure. So, so Kieran, your phone rings. It's your your brother-in-law, Chris. What's your initial reaction? Um, Come on, Patricia. Yeah, um, I was thinking... Um, you know, maybe a bit of overindulgence with the day that was in it. Oh, poor it. Potentially. Oh, poor poor it. Poor it. Because, uh, yeah, I thought she might have to eat too much. Or, yeah. You know, um, so I went up to them. But as soon as I got up there, uh, it was on the floor in the bathroom. As she was saying, she was just after getting sick. Uh, she was playing about chest pain and pain in her teeth. And I kind of, you know, put one and one together and, and said it, to myself, I was saying, um, you know, she could be in a spot of bother here. So we need to call the ambulance. So I rang the ambulance and um, fairly promptly the all-ambulance crew, um, Kira and Tommy, they arrived on scene. Now, they had with them, of course, they had the ECG machine and they had medications that if we needed to give Tetna, we could give them. And um, we'd done an ECG on her and saw straight away that she was having um, a heart attack. So we were explaining to her that, you know, we, we needed to get her out of there and get her to Cork, um, up to the PCI lab, the uh, cat lab in the CUH. And uh, she wanted to change. Uh, you know, she was in her... Waiting clothes. Yeah. yeah. So so there was um, Kira, one of the, the other paramedics, one of my colleagues there from the aisle. She assisted me in changing clothes in the bathroom. But then it went into a seizure. Oh, my God. Sometimes, sometimes that happens... Um, just at the start of a cardiac arrest. So we got it out into the main um, bedroom from the bathroom. Um, 
suppose we knew what was coming. So we gave ourselves a bit of room. So we got out into the, into the um, bedroom and had the limit to cardiac rest then. And, and I'm assuming at this stage now you've passed out, is it? Yeah, I don't remember. The, like, I remember everything up to it. I remember asking, you know, could I change out my clothes? And Kira was fabulous. And, like, I was still lying on the floor when I changed my clothes. And, you know, we I got the leggings on. Yeah. And then nothing. I don't remember anything um, after that. So, Kieran, how long did you have to work on Etna at in the hotel? It was possibly six to seven minutes, uh, Patricia. Wow. Um, we got three shocks into her. And um, then she started to come around. Um which was great, you know. Um, we could see on, on our machine that she was going back into a, a normal heart rhythm, if you like. Um, so at this stage then, I suppose, the, the, the thoughts were about how to get her out. And, and, and as if by magic, the all-ambulance service, or sorry, the all-fire service, they, they appeared <laughs> like out of nowhere. Brilliant. So, so then I knew that we had everything we needed to get it to Cork because we had to extricate her out of the out of the hotel as well. Um, so we had the paramedic crew from y'all, and we had the, the fire um, service from y'all. So we knew we had we had we had everything we needed to get her down to the ambulance and, and up to up to Cork, you know. And when you were performing CPR, uh, Kieran, and, we, and when you're thinking of you know how to get her out and what what do we need, are you Kieran the paramedic as opposed to Kieran the brother at that moment in time? Well, I suppose in that moment in time, um, Patricia, I was hearing the paramedic. Yeah. I, I, I was I, I was thinking about it a lot, you know, after and, you know, the following days and since. Uh, you know, I, I got my paramedic hat on because that that's what was needed at the time, you know. Uh, she didn't need a brother. She had a husband there. She didn't need a brother there. You know, she needed as much um, medical help there as, as she could get, really, you know. Mm. She, oh, she needed a brother who was a fantastic paramedic. That's what she had, and that's well, that's what she got. That's what she got. So Part you're, of a big team, your 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 blue flashing lights. I imagine are you from from y'all to 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 Cork, Ethna? Um, yeah, um, like that. No, I, I when I came round, I came round to all the the all firemen um, in the room, and they brought me down the stairs. And in fairness, they were amazing. They were so calming, and I, I, I knew I was good. Do you know, no health wise, I, I knew that there was something wrong, obviously, mm-hmm. but I knew I, I was okay because they were there. You know, the paramedics were there, the, the firemen were there. They were outstanding. Um, so yeah, into the ambulance, and I was in the like uh, Chris, my husband, and Kieran weren't allowed in the ambulance going up. So I had um, a gentleman, Tyke O'Shea was his name, an advanced paramedic. Um, gentleman doesn't cover it. He was, again, amazing. Um, and, you know, was talking to me the whole way. And like that, I was kind of out of it. Um, it was all just very surreal. I, I didn't I didn't know what was after happening. Almost, almost felt like a dream. I imagine at times, pretty much, yeah, yeah, pretty much. It was just like everything was just. It was like literally an outer body. It it could have been happening to somebody else. So what happened when you got to CUH? I 
don't really, Karen could probably tell you more. I don't really remember what happened. Okay, there. was, was Karen straight into the cat lab? Was it straight to surgery, Karen? Yeah. So yeah. Um, <clears throat> she went straight into the the PCA, the cat lab, and the CUH, and she got stinted. Um, so the ambulance crew of Tyg and Kira and Tommy, they, they would have rang ahead, knowing that Edna was having a heart attack. Um, we had the technology now to, that we ring ahead and we go straight, we bypass the um, A&E sometimes if, if it's appropriate, we bypass the um, A&E and we go straight into the cat lab, straight onto the brilliant. Uh, table. It's brilliant because like, earlier we were talking about, you know, delays and ba- and at, at A&E departments but I was making that point as was another listener that once you get into the system and, it, you know, we have an excellent, excellent System and we've brilliant nurses, we've brilliant doctors, we've brilliant paramedics, um, and it, and I think a case like this proves just you know where everything fell into place and everything was ready for Ethna obviously as soon as you got to CUH. Absolutely, as, as yeah. I said, we rang, the lads would have rang ahead, so everybody would have been put in place, uh, and they were waiting for us. They were actually waiting for us when we arrived. You know, um, oh. as the patient, um, my God, like I I can't say enough from start to finish how you know as I, as I said to someone during the week it, 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 they were like a tag team you know they just and words weren't even needed they just boom 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 everyone knew their job and their place and what needed to be done and who needed to be where and uh, the care I got was just outstanding and that included being in hospital then afterwards for the, the I was in for about eleven days, and I can't say enough. Yeah, they and you're the, the you're the living doctor. proof. You're the living proof of that care that is provided oh, by by our by our health service. And then, uh, Kieran, obviously, did you then have to ring family members to tell everybody what was going on? Yeah, um, like Edna's the she's the baby of the family. There's ah. seven of us, seven of us there. So I had to ring. Um, I had to ring all the other family members, including one in London and one in Dublin, you know. And uh, most of them met us up, up, up at the cat lab. Most of them that were able to come up, came up because, you know, I suppose we didn't know where this was going, you know. I know. So, I know. so it was kind of worrying, worrying times for the, certainly for the first, you know, few hours. But, um, but yeah, we made the phone calls and who got up there, got up there, you know. And is there any history of heart disease for you? No, no, not for me. Personally, um, like my dad has had a few heart attacks, but me personally, nothing. No. And Kieran, anyone else in the family? Uh, to the best of my knowledge, no. No. Okay. No. Um, as, no. As, as I was saying, uh, our father had a an angina, and he's a he's a couple of heart attacks already, but they were a long time ago, you know. But I, yeah. I yeah. Know, just know the history in the family, no. Yeah, and I mean, and I know one of the main reasons that you've gone public and, and want to talk about it is to alert people. Uh, Kieran, firstly, how important time is and how important having CPR skills are. So t- time is everything. Time is everything, you know. Um, and as you said earlier, I think it was in the start of your um, interview, there, 70% of these categories happen in the home. So as on, it, it will be a loved one or someone you know that will uh, go to cardiac arrest and, you know, as, and as far as having skills concerned, um, there's a lot of CFR groups run through the um, National Ambulance Service uh, in the community. And uh, I know Jordy on the other line, maybe he is, maybe he's not, but um, 
the knowing knowing how to do uh, CPR. It, it, it's a life-saving skill, uh, Patricia. You know? It really is. Yeah. It keeps things going until the ambulance almost gets there, you know, or until you get a defib. It, it, it really is a life-saving skill, you know. Yeah, and it's it's a it's a skill that everybody needs to learn. It it really is. So uh, so, Wesley, you're you're on the road uh, to to recovery. Are you are you working? Are you back at work? Or I'm not back at work yet. Hopefully, okay. now in the next week or so, um, I will be back. Um, again, it's slow. I'm not putting myself under pressure. No. Um, you know, I'll be back when I'm back, kind of thing. Whereas these things would have bothered me before. They're not. My priorities have kind of changed a bit. Well done. Well done. Well done. Yeah. Well, it's it's a fantastic. It's one of those good news uh, stories coming out of, of of health, and and they need to be recognised uh, as well. So, listen. Thank you, and continued good luck with your 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 road to recovery, uh, Etna and uh, Kieran. Thank you, our hero. Thank you for joining us. Thank uh, you for so both. much. Good morning to you. Bye bye. Bye bye. And, and their the lovely brother and sister there, Etna and uh, Kieran uh, Minahan. Time of the essence and the importance of CPR skills. 0818 103 103. John Paul taking your calls. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Having just uh, spoken about the importance of learning uh, CPR, Mary says Patricia Mallow Red Cross have done several first aid and CPR courses in transition year classes with the local schools. It is a great life saving service. Long may it continue, says Mary. Yeah, and that's the age, isn't it? teach it when the young people are still in school because what a skill to bring with them as they go into um, adulthood. Uh, oh, ours to protect. This week in our ours to protect, we're going to be looking at the deposit return scheme. Remember, that's coming in on the 1st of uh, February and tomorrow on our ours to protect, we're going to speak with those in other countries who already have this scheme in place and the effectiveness of its project in society. I mean, there's some countries, Germany is one of the countries, I think they're going 21 years and if you talk to any Germans, they automatically just return their bottles and cans. They don't even think about it. And of course, the previous the previous generations and indeed some of us when we were young growing up, the milk bottles used to put out the milk bottles and they would be rinsed out and left for the milkman or you'd bring them to your local shop. If you were getting your six bottles of milk, you'd bring your old bottles back. It just became a habit and no doubt it will become habit here as well. That's the, the, the deposit and return scheme which comes in from the 1st of February. We'll, we'll have more about it tomorrow on our hours to protect. Can anybody to help our Teresa in Ballyclough. She's been on to us this morning. She re- recently purchased a new washing machine. She has connected fine, but she has a problem with it. The suds are staying within the washing machine. She says she's even finding them when she takes some of the wash out, their suds still on the clothes. She has rinsed the machine six times. It's making absolutely no difference. The wastewater pipe all been checked. Everything is fine. And she wonders, has anybody else ever had this problem? She didn't have it with the previous washing machine. It's only happening with this new washing machine where suds are remaining in the washing machine and even suds remaining on the clothes. Something going wrong there. And the obvious one when I saw it was was to do with the washing powder or the detergent that Teresa's using. But I'm assuming it's the same detergent that she's used all the time. She suddenly hasn't changed uh, washing powder. If anybody can offer advice to Teresa on suds staying in a washing machine, 0818103103. A Bantry listener says in the last number of weeks, dog fouling has got completely out of hand in the town of Bantry. Could you ask the local councillors what they are doing about 
about it, please, signed a concerned Bantry resident. What's gone wrong with dog owners in Bantry? Will you please clean up after your dogs? It's a real, real nuisance for so many people. And let me stay on uh, animals because... I mentioned uh, earlier that Heidi had sent me on a piece from England where in the UK there's a petition on change.org. It's a woman who started a petition because her beloved cat was killed by a very aggressive dog that had previously shown very vicious behaviours and uh, she's discovered that in UK dogs enjoy more robust protection than cats. So they're looking for a change to the Dangerous Dogs Act so that owners could take legal action if their cats were harmed or killed by dogs due to negligence our malice intent and I was wondering what happens in this country and Heidi was saying do we have laws and if not should we have laws to protect cats Patrick says uh, from Castletown Bear listening to that he says well if you were going to go down that route of protecting cats what about mice what about gerbils what about birds if you protect cats where does it all end do we not have to protect all of the animals? And no matter what it is, at the end of the day, the owner is responsible. Patrick says, for example, they are cat lovers and they have cats and they have bells on the collars of their cats and they do that as they also feed birds in the garden. Yeah, and that's a great way to stop cats from killing birds in your garden if you put a little bell around their neck because it warns off the uh, birds. And then I love this one from cats when people t- were talking about being cat owners. Uh, somebody says, Cats have what's called a roving commission. This means that they can go anywhere they like and you don't need a licence for them. And anyone who has a cat knows you don't ever, ever own a cat. You are privileged that they have graced you with their presence. A couple of people on about the washing machine uh, problem. Liz in Balancolic says possibly it could be a problem with the drum of the washing machine and the pump. Uh, Liz says she had a similar problem before but she says shocked to hear it's a new washing machine. She said she'd go back for a replacement because it will be under guarantee and Dan is saying the same thing. Uh, if it's the washing powder hasn't been changed then it must be in the machine. Uh, he says uh, get a replacement. Okay, gotta go. I'll talk to you tomorrow 10. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy the insurance group want great advice you know who to talk to cmig.ie selling a little or a lot shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work.